0: Hello and welcome to episode 4 of the Talk Show Talk Show podcast and I'm your host George Grimwood. Occasionally on the show we will be making full use of the facility known as the internet in order to review, critique, analyse or indeed riff about a particular episode of a particular talk or chat show. More often than not it will be through the usual channels of YouTube and the like with those who have recorded shows putting up their copies for the world to see. More often than not, the available shows that have been uploaded are ripped from VHS and can be a little hissy, a bit blurry and generally rough around the edges. Personally, I'm quite fond of all those factors that make this retrospective viewing a more nostalgic experience. But thankfully, there are also production companies now uploading their own shows with good crisp video and clear audio the official Johnny Carson YouTube channel have begun to upload full episodes of The Tonight Show, often with the adverts intact, the only edits appearing to be related to music played during a guest's entrance. Over this and the next two episodes, we will be looking at all aspects of one particular episode of The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson from Thursday, November 9th, 1972. If you'd like to join in on the discussion, the link to the show will be provided in the description of this episode, as well as on our new Facebook page, that's www.facebook.com forward slash talkshowpodcast, as well as our Twitter feed, the handle being at talkshowpodcast. And in part one of this discussion, joined by Gary Roger of the Sitcom Club podcast, we talk about the monologue, the banter, a TV guide listings bit, and the adverts, all with some modest deviation along the way. Next week, we will be discussing the Joan Rivers and Bee Gees segments, and the week after that, we'll focus on Rob Reiner and Dr. David Rubin. For now, however, let's start, appropriately enough, at the beginning. We have the music. We have Ed McMahon's voiceover. We have the set, the classic set, mustard yellow, three-seater sofa, a single swivel chair for Ed and singular guests, and the desk, which almost certainly resembles a tiki bar, on a shag pile platform with a faux backdrop with seven arched windows looking over a, a faux version of California highlighted by various plants around the set. Carson comes out, those famous curtains, multi-pattern curtain, perhaps to emphasise Carson in his suit at the front there. He comes out, and the show begins. Gary, what were your initial thoughts on this episode of The Tonight Show?
1: first thing that struck me was it was a very relaxed atmosphere. Carson's monologue was... I wouldn't say that it was a classic. It wasn't firing in all cylinders. And the audience reaction actually seemed a little bit sort of muted at this point. But the interesting thing about the monologue was that it was just that. He wasn't actually doing quick-fire gags. He was just talking about the events that happened, and if there's a gag related to it, you come out with it. But sometimes it was just sort of conversational, just chatting with Ed and chatting with Doc and so on. And it's a very nice, warm opening to the show. And it sets the pattern for the rest of the show, it sets the pace for the rest of the show because it wasn't bang, bang, bang. Here's our guests, we've got to hold your attention at all times, don't you dare flip, don't dare have a look at the other channels, and so on and so on. It was all very relaxed and in many ways it it sort of reminded me a little bit of if you were watching a studio tape of something that hadn't been fully edited yet and so you just had like you know, little pauses here and, and okay, the BGs come down and sit on the set and just chatting away and the little piece that they talked about, oh the the equivalent show to this in the UK, who's that? Oh Michael Parkinson, okay. Things like that which don't necessarily go anywhere. They're not leading to a gag, but they're just there for their own sake. I like the overall atmosphere, I like the overall pace, I like the fact that it was so relaxed and it wasn't constantly grabbing a hold of you and saying, We want your attention, don't dare look away. Yeah, absolutely. The First impression I got
0: of the monologue itself as well, that you have a certain order in the way of introducing Ed, introducing the band and Doc, and still it just feels like banter, riffing, all part and parcel of the standard set monologue. Of course, highlights the political elements of the time. Of course, Nixon was re-elected in a landslide two days previously. He mentions Ed McMahon's act that he'll be performing in New York. Of course, it was the week later that they went for three weeks in total, I believe, to back to New York, having already left there previously, to go to Burbank a few months before the summer in 1972. And... I'd be very interested, actually, to see what Ed McMahon's act consisted of. If I'm not mistaken, I know that he sings or has sung, but yes, 1972, Ed McMahon had an act at St. Regis in November. I'd be very intrigued to see if any of our listeners or anyone has any information about certain things that we'll highlight throughout the show. If anyone has any articles or anything that they discover, we we found a few along the way, but if anyone has anything of any interest that we reference in this episode, please do send it in. Put us in the right direction because there were some great things in this episode looking at it from a critical and analytical perspective. Certain things about that era that it wasn't a case of me looking into references to get the joke. It was to also get a feel of that era and... In that respect, would you say the selection of guests for this episode, I mean, bearing in mind that this has been handpicked to go up from the official Johnny Carson YouTube channel, would you say it captures the essence of a definitive Tonight Show with Johnny
1: Carson show? Yes, I would say so. I mean, you've got comedian Joan Rivers, you've got comic performer, actor Rob Reiner, musicians, the Bee Gees, and you have an author. So you've got a nice mixture there, a nice mix, a nice blend in terms of just overall good conversation. And you don't have the requirement, there's, there's no need to suddenly be full on and say, right, here comes Comedian A, bang, 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 doing their stuff, and then Comedian B and so on and so on. It's a nice mixture, and also the fact that you've got the offer coming on at the end, that sort of helps you to unwind as well, because Joan Rivers is quite sort of direct, and she's sort of firing out the gags early on. And then as the show goes on, and it gets past half past midnight, it gets towards 1am, then you've got then a slightly slower pace. So when the offer's on at the end, then and Rob Reiner's are still there, and they're just sort of having a conversation, really. So it just winds down nicely. And yes, it is a very good mix, and you'd say that it is a textbook selection of guests. And also emphasises certain
0: aspects, certain, I don't want to use the term stereotypical, but certain aspects that are directly affiliated with the concept, with the, how people remember The Tonight Show. You've got the, hi-yo, straight from the get-go. You've got Ed McMahon going, hi-yo, from the get-go. And you've got Doc Severinson wearing something unusual and blasé, sort of his patchwork attire. And you've got, at the end of the monologue, a little... Carson's little golf putt to the towards the band to kick it off and it's got all those great aspects, which yeah. I, I'd be certain that it was never always going to be every single night. All that you know, all those aspects came together. It's probably one or the other, depending on time and circumstances and the atmosphere of the crowd as well. And I mean in the monologue, aside from the political aspects as well, you also have referencing and the way he introduces Doc Severinson into the monologue is raiding massage parlours along Melrose. Yeah. And it was around there at that time in that year that the Groundlings eventually set up shop in that area. And the way they introduced Doc Severinson by implying that oh, you know, he's left some evidence behind implicating him in this somewhat saucy situation. It's all very playful. It's a very light banter, but it also emphasizes the raciness of that time. I mean, if you look at the way Joan Rivers delivers herself and you've got Dr. David Rubin talking about sex quite openly and you've got Rob Reiner talking about his marriage. There's a certain thematic element going on in terms of the relationship, sex, this new generation and what can and can't be said on television. The YouTube channel has omitted the entrances of the guests. Carson introduces them. They're on the seat. And I don't know if that's a copyright issue, perhaps with the music or not, but that's the only edits that I noticed, apart from one, and that's when they refer to the Osmonds, Donny Osmond specifically, going from the Pepsi generation to the blank generation. And there's a little laugh, and then it moves on. And I've no idea what that was referencing, but they mute that word, and I've no idea what that word is. Little clues, little things. And before we continue, Gary, you and I have had a look at a auction online. Now, I don't believe it was the same desk as the one that's featured in this episode. This one was a little later on. If I'm not mistaken, in the in the auction, it's a couple of years after this episode in 1972. But there was an interesting metallic stand that was nailed just in from underneath Yes. on Carson's side of the desk, which can't be seen to the human eye on camera. It's just there for something that Carson can use. Now, about twenty minutes in to the show, and he's in the middle of an interview with Joan Rivers, there's a moment where he puts his arm down and a cigarette just appears out of nowhere and it's lit. And he does a little, takes a little puff and then he puts it back down underneath and his hand's free again. Now, initially I thought, right, well, that must mean that maybe there's a secret ashtray there. But he stubs it out on an ashtray on the desk a couple of minutes later. So I still don't know what that metallic holder is, <laughs> but I'm convinced that there is a strong chance that he, and I'll have to rewatch this. That Carson must have made some kind of nod or some kind of action that the production crew were aware of, where perhaps a runner or someone essentially goes under the desk, (laughs) lights a cigarette in his mouth, and then hands it to him for him to take a puff. Because obviously he can't light the cigarette, but he can put it out. So it's just little things like that that I just found fascinating, it's just the concept of "Oh, well, we'll just take a puff do this yeah, put it out, but you can't be i, I don't know if that's i don 't know if you could be seen lighting a cigarette, but you could certainly be seen putting one out on this talk show
1: and that's a really good point actually i've got no recollection of seeing anybody actually light up in a talk show or a current affairs show, because you see people smoking all the time in those shows. But unless it's perhaps like a guest, for example, maybe they're sure, Depardieu. <laughs> well, yes, indeed. But no, unless it's like a guest who's maybe lighting a pipe or something like that. As far as the host is concerned, you don't really see them lighting up, but you will quite often see them with the cigar in their hand. But, yeah, okay, yeah, it's a good point. I, I don't recall ever seeing Carson or anybody else suddenly get the lighter out and, and light up. But smoking itself and stubbing out, that's acceptable. <laughs> it's an odd sort of protocol it's yeah it's i
0: still don't know what that metallic thing was for maybe maybe he parked his cigarette on there perhaps i don't know but the mystery remains now maybe i'll put this photo up on the at talk show podcast feed on twitter but it's a mystery this strange sticky out metallic bit of this desk i i do wonder what it is maybe, i mean maybe at this point maybe because as i say it's this desk that was in the auction was a couple of years after this episode so maybe maybe they tighten the ra- the reins a bit and maybe the ashtrays perched on there i don't know but then it seems too easy to knock but now i know that this is a tiny thing but it's just another piece of the puzzle of the magic of television it's just little things that are going on in the background that we're sort of not too familiar with but back to the monologue they also reference cancellations now this was a situation where it was the mid-season cancellation, something that does still happen today, and they referenced Bonanza, which was struggling in the ratings because of the death of Hoss, Eric Hoss, right, the character A.K.A. Damn Blocker, who died in May that year. You have Anna and the King, which I was very intrigued about. Now I knew, of course, about the film The King and I, Yul Brynner, and so on, yeah. but I
1: did not know about a sitcom. Well, there's so many different shows that just completely passes by, and things like, I mean, I can see it in front of me here on the shelf, the complete directory to primetime networking cable TV shows from 1946 to present, and I think present then was probably about 2000 or so. But, yeah, it's just, there's just so many, given the number of networks you've got and their longevity, they've just got so many possibilities for for like individual pilots and, and pilots that may not have been even been broadcast. Pilots that did get broadcast, shows that began and then were pulled within a handful of episodes. It's not really a phenomenon that we're too familiar with in the UK. Apart from very high profile examples of shows in the UK, for example, Sin on Saturday, the talk show with Bernard Fault, which was pulled after three episodes. Things like the sitcom Hardwick House, which was pulled after two. Apart from a little period around about sort of 2003 where ITV had a a sudden spate of these premature cancellations. It's not really a phenomenon that we're too familiar with in the UK. By and large, when shows begin, they do tend to see out their course, even if they perhaps get shunted on the schedule, perhaps get moved to a less competitive slot. Whereas, yeah, it does seem more sort of prevalent phenomenon in the US that shows that don't do well just get pulled, they just get axed and they don't really have a great deal of time for letting shows bed in it does seem that it shows have got have got to sort of prove themselves very very quickly uh, but of course it depends on of course, what time of year you're talking about as well because if it's something like say sweeps week for example then obviously they're going to have their very very best output on then but there'll be other times of the year, perhaps summertime for example where you can take more risks
0: yeah, and I think Anna and the King was closer to the risk factor in terms of the fact that Margaret Landon did not approve the author of the original book, Anna and the King of Siam. And just generally, it's an unusual situation. It's it. I I would have to watch an episode to see if there was a laugh track, but there it was a non-musical adaptation for starters. It wasn't like they were singing and dancing in the sitcom. But by the time it was cancelled, by the time they announced the cancellations to the point where Johnny Carson's using it in the monologue. It was seven episodes in and it, it just petered out with a final episode airing on New Year's Eve 1972. And I must watch some of this. I must see this. I must. I must Does it su-
1: survive? Do we know if it survives in the archive?
0: I believe the pilot is circulated. I don't believe it's been released on DVD. I, I'd imagine, and I'd have to check this, but I would imagine that a version of the DVD of The King and I or a Blu-ray version or something might have... Something about it, perhaps. I, I imagine it probably doesn't get a huge amount of publicity, and probably will never be released publicly on DVD because of the Margaret Landon lawsuit, which I don't believe was successful, but nevertheless, obviously, it's stifled a few feathers. And also the fact that you have your Brynner still in it, playing the King of Siam, but then you have Anna Owens portrayed by Samantha Egger, replacing Deborah Kerr. And I'm not surprised it didn't last, essentially. But the other cancellation they mention is the Bold Ones, the New Doctors, which ran until May 1973, but there was all different strands of the bold ones that covered different careers, and they had one about law and medical profession,
1: of course, and amongst others. One thing that struck me, actually, about the routine that Carson did with Ed McMahon about the TV listings is that they had the elbow room to set that gag up, because the setup was basically him reading all of these different listings, all these different synopses of these shows. And you've got a sort of a, I mean, how long was it? Sort of two, three, four minutes where he's reading all these different things. Some of them are getting a mild giggle from the audience. A lot of them are getting no reaction at all. Quite flat, yeah. Yeah. And I was actually beginning to think at one point, is this actually the bit? Is is this the bit itself? Is it just, he's going to read these as if they're going to get a reaction for, in themselves from the audience? And as it turned out, of course, then he revealed that their creative team had actually come up with some alternative listings for these shows but it was nice that again they just had the time to set that gag up it was like okay we're going to set the scene pay attention here's what we're talking about and now here comes the reveal yeah the audience reacting to that was
0: essential to that working and the fact that they barely reacted to just the casual listings being read out so yeah we we all have a copy of tv guy johnny and then They have their own versions, and they just throw them out, and they all get big laughs, and they all hit hard. And it's interesting that you can test the waters with the audience on the basis of their reaction to certain topics as well. For example, in the monologue again, you've got reference to the Bureau of Indian Affairs building takeover, which, if I'm not mistaken, finished that day, but... It was kind of a sour point for Nixon's re-election to begin with, to the point where he'd privately signed the Restoration Act that returned Menominee Indians to full tribal status, which was part of the whole issue that led to the takeover. And the reaction from the audience wasn't particularly reactive.
1: I think if that routine was to be performed today, if Letterman was to do something like that, for example, I suspect that they wouldn't have the long lead-in. I suspect that it would be constructed in such a way as he would read out the original TV guide listing, and then immediately read out their revised version for that show, and then repeat, repeat, repeat. I don't think that they'd want to have a sequence that was two or three minutes long that wasn't getting laughs, even if it wasn't intended to get laughs, if you know what I mean. I think that they would want to be much more bang, 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 holding your attention.
0: Yeah, and I think it also helps that Ed McMahon is there to Usher in the laughter and provide a buffer zone that even if it doesn't hit with the audience, it will hit with Ed because that's what that's what Ed does. And there he is. And I like the fact that they have that loose banter before the TV guide bit as well. The fact that they've got they have a little chat about the loose wires randomly being behind the desk. He picks them up, going, "What are these for?" <laughs> Which I'd imagine were there for the Bee Gees yeah. performing later on. And they talk about returning to New York for three weeks. And which they refer back to later on where the first guest of the first New York show on their return the following week is Mayor John Lindsay, the mayor of New York at the time. And Ed McMahon talks about how he's appearing the following night on November the 10th, 1972 on Diner's Place, which I must hunt down that episode for the sake of continuity. And then I like the fact there's also a reference to Peter LaSalle, who is the associate producer on The Tonight Show at this point. And... He's known as the Host Whisperer. He is involved with The Late Late Show with Craig Ferguson to this day. And we'll, we'll be looking further into his career and his involvement in an episode further down the line of the Talk Show Talk Show.
1: Now, actually, in between Johnny getting from stage to desk, we had a little intervention from Ed McMahon, didn't we?
0: Yes. Now, there's a couple of these throughout the show. And I'm so glad they've kept those in as well. And not just those, but the general adverts that went out, which is fantastic. And I'm glad, I'm glad they kept those in on the official YouTube channel. It's an interesting element of which advert... The fact that adverts stay in, but the musical intros don't. It's very particular. But in this first in-house advert, as it were, you have Ed McMahon advertising
1: Budweiser. Did it make you want to have a Bud? If it wasn't for the fact that I actually don't drink beer at all, then yes, it would have done. He's a very persuasive salesman and he's actually, he's not coming across as, okay, yeah, he is coming across as a salesman as in it's entirely set up in that way, because here he is stood in front of the Budweiser stand, and it's very, very clearly telegraphed, this is a sponsor's message. But nevertheless, it's just Ed McMahon, and he's saying, hey, look at this, you know, eight packs, Budweiser, and you get this little gift if you get him in the store, and so on, and yeah, it, it's nice, he's, he's, even though he is clearly doing a sales pitch. He's not come across as some sort of smarmy, sleazy salesman. It's just Ed McMahon. It's just like he's one of the guys you'd imagine just having a butt with. So he's actually absolutely, absolutely perfect for that particular pitch.
0: And another aspect of the Larry Sanders show made sense to me. Yes. <laughs> From the very first episode, they they talk about advertising, in-house advertising. What is it? Is the it Garden Weasel. Is that it? The Garden Weasel. <laughs> and Larry's very uncomfortable with doing the adverts. And then he gets Hank involved, and Hank is a natural and proves from the get go that despite his idiocy, he's also very loyal and he has his talents. And Larry needs him as much as Hank needs Larry, just for very different reasons. I would be very interested to see if anyone out there ever did get involved with this promotional sale of Budweiser and got this, I think it's, what is it? The, it's metallic. These small metallic replicas of the Clydesdale horses and their carriages that were used to represent Budweiser. And I am a fan of those promotional things of kind of
1: tat. <laughs> and it, and I was going to say, I was going to use exactly that word. It is tat. That's exactly what it is. It's just some little trinket that you can get when you buy an eight pack. And yeah, there's no wrong with that. But now, OK, now, now keep an eye on your screen there, George, because I'm just going to send something to you. OK, hang on a second.
0: For those who aren't aware, we're not doing this in the same room. This is via Skype.
1: No, we are. No, but we've just decided that even though we're in the same room, we're also doing it over Skype on, on two entirely different PCs and connections. It's a bit weird, actually. But, yeah, have a look at that. Now, I I see, there you go. Then there, there is an example of the kind of thing that we're talking about. If you want to put that link up onto the, uh, the homepage. It's on eBay. Budweiser cast iron wagon pulled by eight Clydesdale horses. Not a replica. I think there must be a replica, because... What <laughs> mean, not a replica? Not... <laughs> Unless you're actually going to get a wagon with a driver and eight Clydesdale horses for $53.99, then clearly it is a replica.
0: I would be intrigued to see if this was part of the promotion from another from another year because I know that the ones that we see in the advert are silver and these ones are painted I believe I won't be spending $53.99 on this particular link that you've
1: I'm I'm thinking you know the expression man child man child yeah as in as in like like men who have still got interest in in like sort of childish things so like men who make like model airplanes or things like that or you know get like the make airfix kits. Well, we don't so, we don't
0: yeah. want to be knocking our audience.
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm I'm saying precisely in in that instance that something like that. I think that that's the sort of audience for it. You know, the little collection of of hot because it's got it's got no value. There's there's no actual. You're not actually buying anything. It's not an antique. It also doesn't serve any purpose. It, it's not particularly sort of decorative. It's just, it's just there, like you said, a piece of tat. But you know, it's something that that sort of. I can sort of imagine if you go in and there's your eight pack of Budweiser and where well, hey there's wee horses, brilliant. I'll have that as well, and i will sit on the shelf gathering dust for the next twenty
0: years. Well, or, or well, depending which state you're in and what, and literally what state you're in, you just go into the into the convenience store and pick up your eight pack of Bud, and they go, hey sir, would you like uh, this tat here? And it's, blah, blah. just grab the Bud and just and just chuck it in the bin as you walk out, and just go and drink your beer and. Yeah, I would love to see, and I'm giving this idea out for free, if someone could set up a Tumblr or a blog or something that highlighted Tat that had been given away as part of an offer for, whether it's cereal or beer
1: or anything, Tat's Corner on Tumblr. There's a lovely episode of Roseanne, Series 1, called Canoga Time, where Dan Mm -hmm. is under pressure from Roseanne to get rid of all his, as she sees it, junk, and Everything that he's got is exactly like that. It's all this, just kind of, all these little items that he's collected over the years. And he in one particular piece he says, that is an authentic replica Civil War field piece. As if there's something about a replica being authentic in some way. And he's got, for example, he's got his cuckoo clock that has the bear that pops out and burps on the hour. And he even let slip at one point that even he can't stand it he just keeps it around to annoy (laughs) hand. there's definitely
0: something to be said for having a tat corner and i'm not recommending everyone has one but, and I'm sure there are probably blogs and tumblers that do exist of these, but if someone could put me in the right direction for the essential, definitive online guide to them, I'd be very intrigued.
1: Well, can I, can I just can I just stop you there? If you want to see Tat, then don't bother going online, just come round to my place. Next door, then it's all there. I am the person who collects all of this junk. I've got room full of it just now. <laughs> I've just got acres and acres and acres of all this kind of stuff. What What's, what's the other thing I got the other day? I think it was some piece of, oh, it was some something about the Mexico 86 World Cup little fella with the sombrero and the ball and what have you. That's a genuine replica, authentic original. When I worked
0: at a bar, I collected beer towels. I think there was an element of myself where I thought I'm never going to get out of the bar. So I just <laughs> I will succumb to its cultures and bought a fair bit of bar and pub and beer ephemera. And <laughs> it, those towels... Are in my cupboard. I don't know what to do with them. Although there is, in fact, there is someone who actually has the Guinness World Record for having the most bar towels, and he contacted me when I bought a batch on eBay. <laughs> this was years ago. I'd like to point out. I, I've you've moved you've moved on from the bar towel era. I I'm no longer in the bar <laughs> towel business. Yes, <laughs> but he did contact me and say, "Oh, well, if you happen to have this one, I'll pay good money for it." I think, actually, he just exchanged it with another bar tunnel. It's like, yeah, I'll send you this one. All right, thanks.
1: I'm getting to the stage now, I'm 36, I'm getting to the stage now where I've still got all of my tat, but I don't necessarily leave it all out on display anymore. Whereas, up until just a few months ago, I mean, my living room looked like Steve Carell's in The 40-Year-Old Virgin. You know, everything just sort of laid out on the, the shelves and what have you, all the, the figures in their original packaging. I mean, I don't actually have anything like that, but, you know, the equivalent. IBA yearbooks on the, on the bookshelf, that kind of thing. And now I'm getting to the point where I've still got them all, of course, and I'm loath to, to lose them, but they're also neatly packed away in cardboard boxes and cupboards and so on, so that it's not quite as glaring if you have guests, for example. Because not everybody's really interested in the Kenny Everett video show annual of 1980 and and think that it would be a bit bizarre if you had that on display in your living room.
0: Well, off there, we were talking about Tim and Eric, and I won't go into the full story because there are certain people who have heard this over and over again, and I won't say specifically (laughs) the person in question, but the comedy duo Tim and Eric were doing a show at Leicester Square Theatre in London a couple of years ago, and as luck would have it, we ended up. Hanging out with them. And it was myself and a friend of mine, Phil. And we ended up joining Tim and his entourage and someone else at a (laughs) Chinese restaurant.
1: Is this someone else? Is this someone who's quite active on Twitter, for example? Yes.
0: Now, now we can't... I'm not going to say, because I don't want to stir that pot. I don't want to... Because also, to be fair, there's nothing wrong with the actual story, but I don't want to incur any wrath. I don't want to be... Did you watch the BAFTA Awards last week? Nope. So, (laughs) yes, we're talking about Ian So (laughs) We're talking about the cast of Gogglebox. Yes, it's all of the entire cast of Gogglebox. went for a Chinese with Tim and Eric. No. So... But anyway, so I I don't know why to this time. I don't know why I think I think it was almost um, an end to a means, not a means to end. It was the fact that the what hap- how things turned out, was almost the reason I had what I had in my bag. I don't know prior to that why I had this in my bag at the time, but I do at one point remember Tim going, "Are you doing a bit?" And I said, "No, no, no. I should have just said yes." <laughs> but long story short, I basically, for some reason, had a copy. VHS copy of Tracy Lord's exercise video in my bag and for some reason over this Chinese meal that I wasn't really meant to be a part of anyway in Soho that of a weekday evening I had then given the VHS of Tracy Lord's exercise video to this person and somewhere and I'd love to see this photo but somewhere, there is a photo of this particular person, who's quite active on Twitter and may or may not have been at the BAFTA Awards the other <laughs> d- the other day, holding bemusedly, baffedly, hold- he doesn't know why he's holding it, he doesn't know why I've got it, and I don't know why either, until that moment. But he's holding up this video. It's nothing to do with anything. It's nothing to do with the Chinese meal. There's been no conversation about it. I've pulled it out of my bag and given it to him, and people have taken a photo or two of him <laughs> confusedly holding it. And I've no idea where that photo is. There's one photo of me that circulates, in some circles, of myself at the te- at the end of this table, of this round table, almost as if I shouldn't be there, like I've been doctored in to the picture, photoshopped into the picture with my thumb up. and And, and Tim's actually looking over at me, Whilst this photo has been taken, as if, what are you doing here? <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> the moral of this, this picture, this picture is of a crowd, is it? It is, and it, it is, it is, it is it a crowd. T- okay, right, yeah, okay.
0: Anyway, so, oh. so the moral of that story is. Right place, right time, you can get a photo taken <laughs> with people, and if you b- carry enough tat around with you, you'll get interesting photo opportunities and if you're even luckier than that, interesting photo opportunities
1: of well known people holding your tat so that's my advice you've got to find you've got to find that photograph I'll tell you why because if you find that photograph of person X holding the exercise video amused, then i've got a feeling that could become twitter's version. Of Andrew Neil and the young lady in private eye.
0: Well, this is the thing. I don't want to go much further on this because <laughs> I, I just think it's a funny photo. I don't want him to think I'm taking a mickey because I'm not. And I, but I just think it's. I think it's a funny photo. It's a. It's a very strange photo that I know exists somewhere, and I just love to see it again because. It's, well, primarily, you know what? It's not even about the person in the photo. It's about the fact that he's holding my copy, VHS copy, of the Tracy Lord's exercise video. Volume one. I don't have volume two, but apparently there was a volume two. And that's, I just need to see that. But having said that, dear listeners, if you can start the trend of carrying around the most kitsch or weird bit of tat from your collection and getting a celebrity to hold it, Whilst you take a photo of them, if you can start that as a trend, please do get in touch. Either at admin at podnose.com or tweet us at talkshowpodcast podcast to any photos of yourself with a celebrity or the celebrity on its own holding a bit of your tat. And by tat, by tat, what do we mean exactly? We mean, how would you describe tat?
1: A replica of a wagon being pulled by eight Clydesdale Clayton- <laughs> <the> horses. <laughs> delivering Budweiser. <laughs> yes, if you can specifically find that and find... You don't have to find it, we're just giving you the eBay link. Get in there and get it. It's only $54. What's that, 45 quid? There you go, buy okay, it. Okay, so here's a very specific mission. I'm not buying it.
0: If anyone can find... Well, if anyone can find a copy of the Budweiser Clydesdale horses, it doesn't necessarily have to be that one, but it's like they can find a copy of them that sort of came free as part of some promo somewhere along the lines in the years. Ideally want the one from 1972, which is silver. And get a photo with either Joan Rivers, Rob Reiner, or The Last Surviving Bee Gees. holding that. You're going to get a prize from the Talk Show Talk Show podcast. I don't know
1: what, <laughs> but I will I will get you something nice. I, I think, to be perfectly honest, you could probably promise them a, a brand new 4x4 because the chances of somebody actually getting a photograph of Joan Rivers or Rob Reiner or Barry Gibb holding up a replica Budweiser car. I, I don't think that's going to happen anytime in the near future. I think may, maybe, maybe, for your own safety, maybe put like a deadline on this competition. Say, I don't know, thirtieth of June or something like that. But I think you're safe. I don't think there's any prospect of this
0: well, happening. someone might discover this podcast many, many episodes down the line. So I'm going to keep this open all the way. Someone might be listening to this a year after I've after
1: we've recorded it. So yeah, the it's open. It's open season. Well. I think the important thing to point out is that this must be a genuine photograph, not a Photoshop. And they have to be consenting to the photo being taken. <laughs> you can't photobomb Joan Rivers just manically holding some a replica of... Does she have to be holding it, or can you just pop it on a table where she's sat and then take a photograph of them in the same shot? Even that is interesting.
0: I Yeah, I'd, I'd allow it. I'd allow it. I would say that I reckon Joan Rivers
1: would be up for it. I reckon even Rob Ryan would be up for it if you had the time to explain why. <laughs> I think that's going to be the toughest bit, isn't it? It's actually getting their attention for long enough to explain what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> Dr. David Rubin will probably be up for it. He's, he's
0: still going. He's still he's still a psychiatrist in Los Angeles. He's still active. So, yeah. I mean, you know, it's genuinely sad that Ed McMahon and Johnny Carson, Doc Severinsen, we can't photobomb them with tat. But we can certainly try with the guests of this particular episode. And... Back to the episode. (laughs) (laughs) So TV Guide, the TV Guide bit. I like the fact that Johnny Carson goes, it's a wonder why anyone watches television. And it's a good opener to reading out from TV Guide. He reads, are we to believe that these are actual genuine ones? Uh, There's no reason why they wouldn't be. I'm pretty sure that if we looked into it further, the descriptions of Goma Gomapal, June Autry, That Girl, Ozzy and Harriet, Cannon, Wild wide West, Dennis the Maness, Doris Day, Gilligan's Island were all real descriptions of episodes. And they all had quiet reactions. But I I would like to see if anyone can confirm if these descriptions are real episodes. And of course, if you're wondering what we're talking about, if you're this far in and you don't know what we're talking about, I have got, I will be putting up the YouTube link in the description of this Episode. So you, even if you can't click through, you'll be able to cut and paste and watch it in your own time. But either way, the fact that then you have Carson not having a huge amount of reactions to these genuine TV guide descriptions, and then it goes into some great gags. They purposefully select shows that have a particular audience. For example, with gomapal and That Girl and Wild, Wild West and Dennis the Menace, they're all kind of like safe, kind of daytime shows. So it underplays the fact that those reactions are quite quiet, and yeah, they're not—they're not great because they're—they're they're not dull, but they're not—it's not exactly exciting television. So then, in terms of the setup to the TV shows that they do their own parts about, which I won't dare try to replicate here, like the Clive Style horses, but they reference the Mod Squad, the Rookies, Cannon, Marcus Welby, Ironside, Mission Impossible—they're all kind of slightly more active shows. And I think that by having that diverse selection of shows, even Sesame Street, the gags are emphasised, perhaps, because the shows are more particular in terms of their style and their audience and the characters are slightly more refined. They have an opportunity to be slightly more emphasized in terms of the humor that can be added to those. Although having said that there's quite a quite a rude Doris Day joke in there which I won't which I won't mention. And I like the fact they top off everything with Sesame Street with a reference to Senator McGovern who uh, obviously had lost lost <laughs> out to Nixon two days previously. So then we go to another advert. And this is the first advert. Obviously, it's quite interesting to see the sponsors they had at the time. Do you recall the first non-in-house advert of the show? No.
1: Was this the one for the detergent, the washing powder? That, That was further
0: down the line, that one.
1: Oh, I see, I see. Oh, and remind me.
0: Well, it's interesting that if there is a sponsor and they have the time, they just do two adverts from the same sponsor. So, with this one, they have Vicks Formula 44, which, effective as codeine, but not narcotic, is the, is the quote.
1: <laughs> you never get the word narcotic being used in, in any British TV ever, do you? Well, surely anyone going effective as codeine <laughs> could be misconstrued on a massive level. <laughs> that does actually remind me. I've got an idea as to what that censored word was that you noted earlier on, but if they didn't want to put it out on the programme, I don't think we should either. But, I'll, ask,
0: I'll yeah. ask you after. And then the second one's Vicks Vaporub, and of course these are all entirely appropriate adverts, given the time of year it is. And of course, as was the Budweiser advert, it, you'd had Thanksgiving, and then you've got Winter's Coming, so Vicks Vaporub, cold season, everything. So it's in, and further down the line you've got, I believe, a foil for your turkey, and things like that. So there's all little emphasised hints of the fact that, you know, winter's, winter is coming, not in the Game of Thrones style. <laughs> I think that'd be winter is coming, effective as codeine but not narcotic. Vic's Formula Forty Four. That would have been slightly <laughs> more aggressive. <laughs> so they get they come back from the advert and they reference a number
1: of times throughout the show Ed McMahon's thumb. Yes, that's right. Yeah, he's got we had some work done. I think they said at one point he had a skin graft in the back of his ear onto the thumb, which right? opens up to a great gag, a great visual gag. Talk to the thumb. Talking to talking to my
0: thumb. <laughs> he had twenty three stitches, but I can't find anywhere online as to what the incident was that led to damaging his thumb. I can't find that anywhere. If anyone knows
1: what happened to Ed McMahon's thumb in nineteen seventy two, please get in touch. I am intrigued as to whatever accident it was, whether it actually happened during one of his live adverts.
0: Oh, do you reckon he sliced off his own thumb?
1: Well, I was thinking that perhaps he was demonstrating some sort of kitchen knife set or something and saying, these blades are the sharpest you can get anywhere. You won't find anything as sharp as these in the high street.
0: <laughs> and it just, then it just very quickly cuts to something else and you just hear ah like that. I <laughs> That would be a very much a Hank Kingsley moment for sure, I'm Yes. But I would like to know what happened to Ed McMahon's thumb. I couldn't find anything. I did Google several times And several different variations of Ed McMahon thumb accident.
1: Did you just get a lot of Google images of Ed McMahon thumb
0: I don't <laughs> lots of close-ups of his thumb. I, I'm pleased to say that although there are many, many different corners, dark, dark corners of Google Image, that it hasn't got to the point where every single
1: body part of every single person who's ever had any screen time is, well, we don't need every single one of every person. We just need specifically a tumbler to be set up with high-resolution close-ups of Ed McMahon's thumbs
0: No, just the one thumb.
1: Okay, well, yeah, just the one. Okay, just that one then. Yeah, because he
0: has no thumbprint. That's that they say how because if he had the skin graft, he he's, oh. has no thumbprints. I I like that just as that little fact comes forward. Ed McMahon on his right hand, I believe, has no thumbprint. So <laughs> there you go. And so there ends part one of our three-part conversation. Tune in next week for part two, where Gary and I will discuss Joan Rivers and the Bee Gees. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at the handle of at Podcast. You can like our Facebook page. That's www.facebook.com forward slash Podcast. And if you have any questions, queries, show recommendations, or would like to come on the show, email us at admin at You should also subscribe to Gary's podcast, The Sitcom Club. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at the sitcom club and visit the site at www.sitcomclub.com. I have been and will continue to be your host, George Grimwood, and I'll see you next week on episode 5 of the Talk Show Talk Show podcast. The Talk Show Talk Show podcast is part of the Podnose Network. Music by Ian Cummins, sound engineering by Ocho, and produced and edited by George Grimwood.